0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
3: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, December 8th, the unexpected loss edition. I'm Alison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry eight. Sam, five, and Wally, three. Dan is off this week, but joining me as co-host is Gabe Roth. Gabe, hi. Hi. Introduce yourself.
3: Uh, I'm Gabe Roth, or uh, if you're reading my name in print or on the Slate website, I'm Gabriel Roth, and I am a senior editor here at Slate Magazine and the editorial director of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Uh, And I am the father of Eliza, who uh, recently turned six years old, and Theo, who recently turned two and a half years old.
1: Happy birthday, guys. On today's show, we'll talk to Debbie Hain, VJ Vergia, an advocate for stillbirth awareness, about her experience delivering a stillborn baby. Then Gabe and I will fetch about and compare notes on kid birthday parties, having to plan them, how to prevent them from taking up way too much of your time and energy. Plus, parenting triumphs and fails, a listener call about evening routines and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, Slate's news editor, Chad Lorenz, will join us to tell us about a minor but important technical tip, triumph, about your family and the cloud. But first, announcements. Gabe is a professional Slate Plus director. So Gabe will do the Slate Plus announcements.
3: Sure. This is absolutely my area of expertise. So rest assured that you're in good hands uh, when I promote our membership program Slate Plus to you. Slate Plus uh, is Slate's Membership program in which uh, Slate readers and podcast listeners help support the magazine and our podcasts, uh, help us do our work, and in return get all kinds of great content, including uh, extended ad-free versions of this and our other great podcasts. um, Exclusive content on the website, our great Slate Academy series in which Slate writers and editors take a deep dive into topics of important interest such as the history of slavery in America, the present state of our uh, financial debt and much more. And we have seen just a remarkable outpouring of support over the past few weeks in the wake of the election. Um, a lot of people who uh, are are eager to support the work that we do here, and um, we appreciate it. You can become a member uh, by going to slate.com slash plus. Hope to see you there.
1: Okay. Also, if you usually tune out when I talk about our Facebook page, tune back in because Next episode, two weeks from now, is Dan's last week as a regular co-host of this show. We can like insert insert sad music here, insert deflated music here. Uh, I can't properly roast him without your help. So as soon as we leave this recording studio, I'm going to go to my desk and open my laptop and go onto Facebook and start a thread on our page asking you to finally judge Dan Coyce's parenting and parenting advice Praise is fine. He's a pretty good parent, in my opinion. But Savage Takedowns are preferred. Don't forget the time he insulted stay-at-home moms. Go to Facebook.com slash Mom and Dad are Fighting. And while you're there, hating or loving on Dan, please like our page.
3: I just urge you to remember, if Dan Coise were judging your parenting, he would not pull any punches.
1: Very true. Keep that in mind. And we try to keep this show, you know, like, I wouldn't say we're like a judgment-free zone here. We're not those kind of people or parents. But, like, we try not to judge you listeners, ourselves, or our guests too harshly. But we're going to, yeah, we're going to sort of, we're going to allow it. For this in this one historic instance,
3: allow and indeed encourage.
1: Yes. <laughs> okay. On to triumphs and fails. Gabe, you go first.
3: Well, so this is a fail, unfortunately, but it was, it's a fail under difficult circumstances. So I, I'm going to hope that this fail is is seen as a justified fail and not a like an unforced error or whatever. Um, you know the thing of like croup, the thing where your yep. kid for three nights in a row wakes up in the night coughing. Honking. Yes. At like with that seal bark at, like, 2.30 in the morning. And, like, you know it's going to happen when you put her to bed, but you're still sort of hoping it's not going to happen, and then it happens. So she wakes us up, and it's 2.30 in the morning, and... Uh, we take turns. My wife and I uh, take turns, but um, it's it's my shift. And so I'm up with her. And, and one of the treatments that is often recommended and that either works or gives you something to do while you and your kid are both awake in the middle of the night is you uh, turn on the shower and sort of steam up the bathroom and you sit there in this hot, steamy bathroom. Um, and Eliza is, uh, as I say, she just turned six and she has a pretty good attitude about stuff like this. And, and she would always rather be awake than asleep. So there's something like for her being up with dad in the night in a steamy bathroom is like, that's kind of a fun activity and certainly (laughs) better than lying in bed. Whereas for dad, um, it's not so much of a fun activity and, and he would prefer to be lying in bed asleep. Um, but so we're in there, we're getting the steam going and it's pretty, it's, you know, we have a good hot shower and a small bathroom is pretty steamy Um, and and at the same time, we need something to do. Like we can't just sit there or she's going to make a bunch of noise and wake everybody else up. And so I've brought the book that we're reading into the bathroom with us. Um, and, and we're sitting there like she's on the edge of the bathtub and she's sitting there breathing the hot steam. And I'm reading to her from Sarah Pennypacker's Clementine Friend of the Week, fourth in the uh, Clementine series, which is, uh, um, it's okay. It's a kind of methadone version of Bezos and Ramona. Um, okay, I've never you, heard of it. If you've, it's contemporary. If It's nice. If you've exhausted all of the exhausted all of Bezos and Ramona books, you might enjoy the Clementine series. Um, But so we're sitting there and I'm reading to her and it's, you know, I'm not at my sharpest, but I'm sort of getting into the story, like it's gripping enough. And I, I like reading stories with her is one of my favorite things that we do together. And, and it's the thing that I can sort of count on that we both really love. And, and So we're sitting there and I'm reading and then the story gets a little complicated and I look over at her and she's kind of zoning out because it is, after all, 2.45 in the morning. Um, And I'm so caught up in it that I said to her, oh, do you see what's going on here? And I started getting (laughs) really excited about it and explaining it to her um and of course she wakes right up and and then we're like having a very animated discussion of clementine and then that's it for <laughs> sleeping for the rest of the night all oh really woke. she never went back to bed yeah i mean yeah she she i mean i tried to get her back to bed but there was no more sleeping and she's looking at books and like i just i lost sight i i took my eye off the ball i got distracted by sarah pennypacker's clementine friend of the week uh and took my eye off the, the the ball which was get this kid and then you back to sleep.
1: Right. I mean, I guess the fail is like, this is like a Hillary Clinton, I'm too organized fail or whatever that was. She was like, I care too much about children's literature fail.
3: Uh, sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it sounds no, I mean,
3: bad. I, I mean, I, I, I'm a terrible parent in all kinds of other ways, <laughs> but, but that is the, that, that's the fail that I chose to present in narrative form.
1: Do you ever take her outside when the, the cold air with the group? I know this is not what we're really talking about, but I No,
3: mean, mean, I mean, we've done the thing of, like, put them next to an open window. It just, like, I don't want to f- go outside in the middle of it. – it's, yeah. it's December. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Uh, and the, No, I would rather sit in a hot, steamy bathroom.
1: I think that works faster. It's interesting to me, though, that you guys switch because for some reason we have just – in our house, only one of our kids frequently gets grouped, but we've – it's just become – like, that's a John thing. Hmm. Like, John is the group guy. Yeah. John's standing outside in the cold. John's in the shower, and I'm – not. Yeah, I'm I mean, a laundry I'm, person.
3: Yeah, like, right. <laughs> there's there, there's always the stuff that right. like gets allocated in exchange for some other set of stuff. Right.
1: Okay. I also have a fail. I feel like mine is a little um, uh, worse, let's say. Um, so as the weather has gotten crappier, I have become increasingly terrible at letting my kids be bored. Uh, this manifests itself. Well, so it's it's both after school when I'm not around. I don't like the idea of them being bored, even though I'm not – there and and maybe bored isn't even in the right word. I don't like the idea of them being inside. Uh, so the thought that they're just like hanging out in the basement, like I don't know, fig- playing dodgeball in the laundry room and being like cooped up this idea of them being cooped up really bothers me. Um, and I think you know, we have a sitter who's great, but she this is not like her career, she probably doesn't care that much. So I'm afraid that as the season goes on, she's going to end up letting them watch more TV rather than you know. Figuring out something else to do with them. So I get very stressed about that, and I go on, like, a tear of trying to plan playdates and making sure they have enough after-school activities, which I think drives everybody in my family crazy. So that's that. And then on the weekends, John would be perfectly happy, like, really happy to do nothing, like, just, like, light a fire cook soup, have the front door open so the kids and their, like, neighborhood friends can run in and out and not have plans. And I get ants in my pants, like, personally. I like to go do stuff, but a lot of it, I think, has to do with this fear of my kids having nothing to do because, like, sure, they can run around with the neighborhood kids, but the neighborhood kids have, like, grandparents to go visit or Sunday school or baseball. And also my kids are terrible at entertaining themselves, so it's not like they're home and just, like, playing cards. They're bugging us. They're asking to play video games. They want us to throw the football or they're just like generally kind of rolling around on the ground, not able to figure out what to do. Uh, so I don't know if the fail is that I'm not willing to live in that like can't entertain themselves boredom wine zone or if the fear or if the fail is that like my kids can't entertain themselves. Uh, do you struggle with this? Do you, Are you okay letting your kids be bored? I feel like in the years of doing this podcast it's become very clear and like you read a lot of pieces on the New York Times like it's really important don't overschedule your kids you should let them be bored that's how they become creative and I just I, I can't do it.
3: Yeah I, I mean uh, first of all this is a this is a large general totalizing yes, fail correct. rather than a specific correct. like crisis fail. Croup,
1: I'm, uh, croup is like fine yeah. I don't have like a yeah,
3: yeah. Um. so I uh, There's two things going on here, right? One of them is the indoor-outdoor distinction, right? Uh, And then the other one is the, like, scheduled activity versus no scheduled activity distinction. Um, And I feel like it's important to think about those things separately. I was an indoor kid growing up and would sometimes be like made to play outside. And now I sometimes make my kids play outside and especially Eliza, the older one, like is an indoor kid like me and just doesn't want to go outside. And like, I kind of feel like that is okay. Humans did build structures for a reason, um, and it is generally more pleasant to be inside of them unless you're, like, looking at a beautiful view or walking up a hill or something like that. Um, The thing about, like, scheduled activities is it feels like it belongs to that category of thing that's, like, you you have to – Make some short term sacrifice for the long term project, right? Like the long term project is they need to figure out how to entertain themselves. The short-term sacrifices, that means you have to let them whine and come and bug you and ask them to throw a football and be like, no, I'm not going to throw a football. Right. You have to figure out something to do by yourself or go play with the neighborhood kids or go play with your brothers or whatever. It, but you're not playing video games or but whatever But do you is. think
1: that really works? Do you think they actually figure it out or, like, at some point they just get old enough to have, like, a car?
3: I don't know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, like, I don't want to be, like, oh, yes, I am the expert and I am always great at, like, doing the short-term sacrifice for the long-term game That's thing great. because I'm constantly doing the short-term capitulation for the long term loss thing of like okay fine here's a candy bar okay yes I will entertain you why don't you go watch a video you know what I mean Yeah. Um, so I don't know what to say, I do think, like, if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where you can leave the door open and they have that as a, like, avenue for, like, well, let's see what this kid is doing. Oh, he's not around. But it took us, like, 15 minutes to go over to his house and find out that Unfortunately, he Unfortunately,
1: was... it's only, like, a 90 seconds.
3: Yeah, that's too bad. Um, <laughs> you have
1: no idea how many times a day I say, go see if Miles is home. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And, yeah, yeah too bad. it doesn't take up enough time. Anyway, I have no solution.
1: Okay. Uh, I think I have to learn to just sort of, like, live with it a little bit more.
3: I mean, we all do.
1: Yeah. We talk a lot on this show about parenting challenges, pregnancy challenges, and recently talked about what it's like to struggle with infertility. But we've never talked about what it's like to be pregnant, to think you're about to have a child, and to lose that child. Debbie Hain Vergia, now a mother of two, delivered a stillborn baby, Autumn Joy, in 2011. She then went on to co-found the stillbirth awareness organization, the Two Degrees Foundation. I know Debbie because our kids are in school together, and she's here to talk to us today about her experience the experiences of other families she's met through this work, and what support families feel they need and are lacking. Hey, Debbie.
0: Hey, Allison. Thanks for having me.
1: So first, tell us a bit about your pregnancy experiences before getting pregnant with Autumn.
0: Sure. So in 2008, I had your typical pregnancy. Everything was fine. Um, I delivered my first daughter, Maya, in um, January 2008. so anyhow, after I I came home with Maya, you know, I resumed normal life. It was a few months of a recovery after some complications, but things were fine. The following year, I got pregnant unexpectedly, and I wound up having uh, my first miscarriage, which was not very upsetting to me or my husband. Maya was a year old. We weren't expecting it, and we were fine. We made peace with it. It was the following year that I got pregnant for the third time where, um, I wound up having a very awful miscarriage that resulted in an ambulance ride and a 10-hour stay in the ER, which was a much larger pill to swallow. We weren't planning it, but she was the right age, and a lot of our friends were trying to get pregnant with their seconds, and it was definitely something that I wanted, but there was nothing at that point I could do. I kind of just said, okay, next time around, it's going to be fine. And I really did feel, as did my husband, that we had paid our dues to the fertility gods you know i'd I'd been very sick, I had suffered two losses. What more could go wrong? So when I got pregnant for the fourth time in four years, um, and I had made it to my through my first trimester into my second, you know we kind of felt like, okay, we can take a a deep sigh of relief, and everything's going to be okay and It was at a second trimester checkup that I had gone in. It was standard. There was no reason to be concerned. I was actually meeting one of the three doctors in my group I'd never met, and we were making small talk about a trip that I had just been on. And it was at that moment when she was, you know, listening to the fetal heart rate that she could not detect one. And so they brought in the ultrasound machine, and it was pretty much any expected mom's worst nightmare. Um, They, looking at the the screen, it was completely silent and black. Nothing was moving um, or beeping. And the doctor basically looked at me and just said, I'm so sorry. And I remember looking at her and saying, sorry for what? And that was when she said, I I cannot detect heartbeat and I'm sorry. It looks like your baby has died. And... At that moment, she said, I'm going to leave you to make your calls. And I remember saying, like, you're leaving me to, to make call to my calling. So I went ahead and I called my husband and we proceeded with, you know, the next steps of calling the hospital and whatnot. And um, we were sent home to wait for a bed to become available and to pack up. And I remember, and I've written about this, I remember saying to my husband, well, what do I pack? You know, I've packed labor bags before, but what, what am I packing now? And, and I remember saying, well, I'm going to bring something that I could throw away. Cause I never want to be reminded of this ever. So I, I pretty much went with like a gas bag full of nothing. And we got the call while we were home. We sent out a mass email to everyone because we, neither of us wanted it hanging over our heads you know, we didn't want people reaching out to us or contacting us. And so we sent like this, we extracted this long email. We sent it to every single person that we could imagine because neither of us wanted to be stuck in an awkward situation. And then we got the call that the room was ready and we headed off. So we got to the hospital, we got to the labor and delivery floor and everyone was expecting us. They knew who we were and they ushered me into a room and left me with a gown and I then started the process of being admitted and being induced and not long after that happened and I started, you know, taking some morphine and some other drugs, a social worker came in and this is is the part that really, I think, is what infuriated my husband and started the process of, of frustration. I never prepped myself for being in a situation like this and I don't think anyone ever does. And I don't, I think when you're in shock, I, I I certainly did not make the right decision, nor did I know how to handle the situation. I, I convinced myself I was still going to go into the hospital and they were going to find that my baby was alive. I thought that this was kind of a a joke and that I was going to prove everyone wrong. And so this woman walks in and basically starts just bombarding me with questions about, do you want pictures with your baby, of your baby? Do you want hair, footprints, handprints? Everything you do with a newborn, which I had done with my daughter before, and it seemed, it seemed to me, like such a foreign concept. I was like, you want me to hold my dead baby? I was like, I don't understand this. And and you want me, you want handprints, footprints? I'm like, I don't understand. And I, it, it just, it was so, it was so. Outlandish to me and to my husband, and at that time we both were just trying to wrap our heads around what what we were dealing with, and so I hate to have to admit this, but I said no to everything because I didn't, I I I was literally in such a state of state of shock that I I I didn't know how to handle anything, and so needless to say, the social worker never came back to visit me.
3: Can I ask wh- why? Why? Why do you say I hate to admit this? Um...
0: Because when I think about it as a mom, what mom would ever say I don't want to hold my baby? I don't want any mementos of my baby. It just seems like such a the opposite of what any mother would want to do or respond. It just, but at that time, like I, I can't explain it. You, you're not thinking clearly, and it just seemed like more than I can handle. When in retrospect, now it's been five years. And trust me, I did go back to the hospital because I'd heard that there were other hospitals that held on to information and and pictures and mementos for years, years. There are hospitals in the state of New Jersey that I know have held on to stillbirth photos and stillborn baby photos and, and mementos for upwards of 35 years. And my hospital didn't.
1: And you wish you had that stuff now?
0: I do. I really do. The only thing I have is her death certificate.
1: You said, you know, before you guys went to the hospital, you sent this mass email to all your friends and family because you just wanted everyone to know. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that people experience, you know, experience this in all different ways. I, I wonder after you came home, like what how did the people around you react and what did you need from them? Like I
0: I well, one, I became a hermit. I was completely scared to step foot out of my, my house and have anyone see me that had once seen me with a, a belly, not see me with one. You know, I had a really nice support system. A lot of people came and brought food and sent flowers. But I think You know, I think death in general is a really difficult concept for a lot of people to grasp. But then you, you an unborn baby that has died is really out of most people's comfort zones. And so a lot of people don't really know what to say. I did have my fair share of the, well, at least you have one, or you're young enough to have more, or you had one, so it proves you can have more. Um, Those really aren't the comments that people want to hear, they want to hear that the, the child that you lost meant something and was real and that you are grieving. And I think that more than anything, people, families in, that are suffering after a loss really just want to know that you're there and that you understand that you're hurting. I, I got a text from, from uh, someone after I had lost Autumn and, and she had said, I have to be honest with you. I really don't know what to say to you, but I want you to know that I love you and I'm really sorry. And that was like the most amazing thing anyone ever could have said to me. Admit that you don't know what to say. That's okay. I don't know what to say either. I, you know, this is new to me too, but I think at the end of the day, just letting people know that you're there for them. If they want to talk or if they just want to sit in silence, that's what I needed, and I, I, I had a, a few select people that would just sit with me.
3: Did you find that afterwards, uh, as you were going through a grieving process, um, were there particular things that were helpful to you in, in mourning a child that you never actually got to know?
0: Um, I wrote a lot. I'm not a writer, but I've actually found myself writing because it was really cathartic. I wrote all my fears and my anxieties and my sadness and my anger out on my laptop every single day for hours sometimes. Um, And that personally helped me. I did go to, to counseling, not so sure that that helped, but I did it because it's what my, my husband and my doctors and my family wanted me to do. I needed to give, autumn's loss a purpose so next thing you know i'm writing and i'm getting published in in our uh, newspapers and i'm being invited to speak at conferences and it just it, it it filled a void in me that that i've needed since i've i've lost her And in her loss i needed to give it a purpose and and my advocacy does that and i you know, I know I've spoken to some people and, and women and they, they thank me for all that I do. And that, that that heals me. That heals my soul, knowing that I'm helping others. But at the end of the day, the one thing I will say is that no one ever thinks about the negative outcome that stillbirth has, you know, on our lives. I mean, at the end of the day, the truth is marriages fail, families fall apart, friendships dissolve, and careers are lost. So, and I'm basically say that because all of that has happened to me, I'm definitely not friends with a, a large number of people that I was before I lost Autumn. My job, my paying job is no longer, you know, my husband and I definitely have suffered and, you know, our family is not the, the same as it probably could have been because I'm not the same person that I was before I lost her. So don't get me wrong. I, I love my husband and I love my children and we have some really wonderful times, but I'm, far from the, the carefree person that I feel like, or I like to think that I was prior to losing her. So
1: how did you become ready to try again?
0: I didn't, it happened by accident. I swear to God, it was, uh, it, it, it was a miracle. I really, it was not, it was not planned at all. Um, it was three months after losing her, which you can ask anyone who knows me. I didn't talk about it. Um, Were
1: you scared the whole time?
0: I was mortified, mortified. I mean, definitely took years off my life. And I mean, you, you've had three children. I, 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 gained, I had no joy in planning this pregnancy because I lived in utter fear every single time that I went to the doctor that we weren't going to see a heartbeat or something was going to go wrong. Every visit, you know, I held my breath before every ultrasound, before every fetal heart rate monitor on my belly. It just, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. How did you
3: talk to Maya during that pregnancy about the the little sibling who was hopefully on the way and, and the one that had been lost?
0: See, that's the thing, Maya. Maya was three and a half when I lost Autumn, and As far as I was capable of talking to her about it was that, you know, sometimes babies come home from the hospital and sometimes babies don't. And I banned the word dead from our house, which I just remembered probably about a year ago. I don't know why it was something went off in my head. And I remember, and she was three and a half, so she wasn't really saying dead that much, but somehow it became prior to losing him, but for some reason, I felt like she said it like a whole lot more after I'd lost her, like this was dead or you're dead or, you know, dead to the end. I don't know. It was the craziest thing. And I literally, you know, I, I told her that it was not part of her vocabulary anymore. She could not say it in the house or around me, which is completely insane, but it was the only thing that I could do at that time. And thank God, she's a really resilient kid. She's amazing. And she made it through it, and and I'll be honest, we didn't talk about my pregnancy. It was literally when I was probably about five months pregnant, uh, she looked at me and she's like, "There is a baby in your belly," and I said, "There is," <laughs> and she's like, "Okay," and I was like, "All right," and we didn't talk about it because I couldn't talk about it. I I never felt that this was gonna work out after three losses, two miscarriages and a still you kind of feel like maybe maybe it's not meant to be. But then thank God my my baby boy it's almost a year to the date that I had lost Autumn in July, I delivered my son Gavin and he has been an amazing gift. So we are a complete family of four. And I feel very grateful.
1: Okay, last question. What Can you just tell us a little about the specifics of the legislation you, you helped to
0: pass? So, in 2013, I caught the attention of New Jersey Senate Majority Leader Loretta Weinberg. And she'd seen an article that I'd written and was very interested to help me draft something. So, We got started working on New Jersey's first-ever stillbirth legislation, and as I said before, on January 21st, 2014, the Autumn Joy Stillbirth Research and Dignity Act was passed by um, Governor Chris Christie. The, The legislation is meant to establish more consistent protocols for when a stillbirth occurs at a hospital, to increase sensitivity on these protocols for families who are suffering And last but not least, to improve data collection around stillbirth events, which is a huge issue because we don't have enough of an understanding as to why stillbirths are occurring. You know, one last thing, you know, I just want to say is that according to the 2016 Lancet series on ending preventable stillbirths, there are 24 countries with lower stillbirth rates than the U.S. and 154 countries that are reducing their stillbirth rates more rapidly than the U.S. For a nation that's among the top 10 wealthiest in the world, I find these statistics shocking.
1: Well, Debbie, it's really, it was really great for you to come on and share your experience with us. I'm, like, I'm sure that we have listeners who have gone through this, and um, you know, it's really valuable for all of us to, to hear and talk to you. So thank you so much.
0: Oh, I really, really appreciate you showing an interest, and thank you for, for allowing me to, to share my story.
1: Each week we take a call from you, our listeners, if you want our parenting advice or want us to find an expert to help guide you on a parenting issue you can't quite figure out, call us at 424-255-7833. Today we have a call from Tanya. I have a two and a half year old son and I'd like to know what you do with your kids during the time between getting home and having dinner,
0: especially now that we just had daylight savings time. We used to try to go for a walk or go outside if possible, but now it'll be dark by the time my son gets home from daycare. Lately, we have been allowing him to watch TV, but I already see this as a slippery slope because he really does become addicted to it quickly. Constantly asked to watch a show and or then gets really mad if we try to turn it off to dinner or when it's time to go to bed. I just have no idea what to do with him at this age. I bought a board game that I thought might be age-appropriate, but I think he's still not quite ready for that yet. I'd love to get some ideas of what your routine looks like, especially for Allison, since her kids are younger. Thank you, and I love the show.
1: Well, we know Gabe doesn't take his kids outside during that time. God, no. no. no walks for the Roth children. Good God, no. That sounds horrible. (laughs) Uh, What do you do during that, like, downtime?
3: You know, I quite like that time, to be honest. I, uh it's always hectic but like it's it's the time when i'm with them after work and so i get home from work and and i am maybe fixing dinner for them and maybe also trying to fix dinner for the adults this is again not every night me and my wife take turns on all this stuff and sometimes we're both around usually only one of us is around if i'm around um theo is two and a half and he is very happy to see me and he's a happy kid in general and wants to like, tell me about his day and wants to sort of climb up my leg a little bit. Um, and I'm usually like trying to do the stuff I have to do while also, um, letting him climb up my leg and asking him what he did in, in, um, pre-K today. And, and he has, you know, toys to explore and things to pick up. And it, it, this never presents itself to me as a problem. I can see that that's a very unsatisfying answer to Tanya. Um, and, uh, I, I guess I wonder, like, what happens if she kind of leaves her kid to their own devices or, like, tries to have them around while she's doing what she has to do? Um,
1: I have this—I fa- always had this fantasy, especially when we lived in Brooklyn, and I sometimes would go run in the park where there's a big loop in the park and you'd see a lot of families riding bikes or taking walks. And I used to actually have this fantasy of us doing a nightly family walk, uh, which I think will never happen in part because – Same with what you're saying. It's usually one of us and not both of us, and it seems hard to, like, motivate and get everybody out of the house for that when it's just one parent around and you have a bunch of kids. But with, you know, with just one two-and-a-half-year-old, I actually think you should try to push the, like, bundle up and go outside for a little. That always feels good, and it also tends to, like, whatever – sort of stress is going on in the house at that time of day, which sometimes can be, especially if you've been there all day, Tanya, I'm not sure if you work or not, but at that, if you've been home all day, that point in the day is like super stressful, I think Uh, it getting everybody out and then coming back home, like, you know, even 10 minutes later changes the energy I think uh, I find in my family. But also to be honest, our gap is like a a slightly different time. Our gap is after dinner and before bath. Uh, my babysitter feeds the kids dinner and then I come home and then there's like a half hour before bath and my kids are usually watching a show like I get home and my babysitter's cleaning up from dishes and that's the time when my kids watch a show and then I finish up my work from home and let the babysitter go and then we go take baths and that's when we tell each other about our days and read books and that whole deal um I think like I don't know I'm not too I don't if the TV causes a lot of stress in your house, then you have to obviously make your own decisions. But if it's like a limited thing where it's like a half an hour of television so you can cook dinner and your child is doing his own thing and you need a moment to breathe and TV goes off when it's dinner time and somehow you can, you know, not have bawling, I don't, I also don't think you should feel too bad about doing that.
3: That's obviously great advice and I, I would endorse all of it. The one other thing that I would say though is, um, I guess, we have early bedtimes, like Theo's going to bed at seven thirty and Zadie's going to bed at eight, and that means that that window is really pretty short. Yeah, like there's tasks you have to accomplish, and you have a pretty small window to accomplish them. And that kind of helps with this. Like it keeps you on target. it does it never feels like, oh, the time is just yawning out before us in the evenings, right. Um,
1: so. That's true. It does depend on what time you're trying to get your kids to bed. My kids stay up way too late. Uh, Okay, if you have a question, Tanya, I feel like we didn't actually like this is a hard one to kind of because I think I think there's no one answer. But if you do have a question for us, call us at 424-255-7833. And Tanya, you can also let us know, email us uh, what different things
2: you've decided to try and if they worked. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
3: So our next topic is birthday parties. Birthday parties are always a pain in the ass. Why are they always a pain in the ass? I have a theory that I would like to run by you. Uh, Having just celebrated my daughter's sixth birthday party, having to strategize and plan and figure it out. My theory is that kids' birthday parties are a pain in the ass because on the one hand, to the kid – It's their special magic day. It's a total celebration of childhood narcissism. It's not even leavened by the uh, spiritual or communitarian aspects of of Christmas or or other religious holidays, um, which sort of tempers the acquisitive joy of those seasons for children. This is the one that's all about you and you're the birthday prince or princess and you get all the stuff and nobody else gets any stuff and me, 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 Um, which does not always bring out the – nicest, most lovable side of our children. Um, and then at the same time, it's an event where like all their friends come in and all of the other parents see what you're doing. And so it's sort of public facing and it, it inevitably sets up comparisons to what other kids are doing. And somebody else always had some birthday party that is more expensive and impressive and, and personalized and unique and wonderful than your own child's birthday celebration. Uh, and so there, there's this inevitable uh, competitiveness that, that comes Between into, parents. Between parents. And I think by the time the kids are old enough, you assume that it plays out between them as well. Um, You you assume that the kids who are going to a different birthday party every weekend uh, are at least inwardly and probably outwardly comparing these different birthday parties to one another.
1: So take me through the process of planning this party. Like what was so stressful? You start from a you start from nowhere. You don't know what kind of party your daughter wants. You don't know who she wants to invite. You know nothing only the age that she is about to turn.
3: Well, the thing is, she after going to every birthday party over the past year, she has said I want that birthday party. Um, and the birthday party that she's been to the most often over the past year is at a place called Bounce U.
1: I know at Bounce University. Know and
3: love Bounce <laughs> University. Every Brooklyn a parent, <laughs> every Brooklyn parent has a graduate degree from Bounce University. Um, for those of you who who do not live in the New York Metro area and have children, um, Bounce U is like a massive warehouse type building in a relatively remote neighborhood in the far south of Brooklyn uh, that has been filled with gigantic inflatable jumping devices I mean I
1: think people have these all over there these yeah. types of things exist all over the country this one just has like an elevator that someone was probably murdered in
3: yep um, no, there's nothing especially artisanal or or esque <laughs> right. uh, about Bounce you. It's the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, but so you're basically you're in, in a windowless room with twenty screaming children who are like flinging themselves off the top of of inflatable slides uh, while very, very loud top forty pop music plays. um and you are hanging out with the other parents for about two hours in your socks in your, socks, in like your kind of, yeah, in in your in your socks. And then they sort of usher you into another tiny windowless room. Um, and and give everybody bad pizza and bring out a cake and the whole thing it's one of those birthday like birthday party industry places where the whole thing is like meticulously scheduled and and you're on a essentially on a birthday party conveyor belt and your children are moved through the cycles of like jumping and eating and going home um and, and they do
1: it all for you right you pay whatever like you pay four hundred dollars and but you don't bring a cake you don't bring you don't make the gift bags you don't have to order the pizza like you just show up
3: that's right and that when we were discussing our options that was the huge advantage of bounce you is like you give them your credit card you pay an astronomical sum of money um if you want the whole class it was definitely more than four hundred dollars um and then you don't have to think about it and you just tell the other parents yep bounce you and everybody knows the drill Okay, um, so
1: that was her, that's been her favorite party. She leaves a Bounce You party and wants a Bounce You party.
3: Loves Bounce You. Who doesn't love Bounce You? If there were a grown up size Bounce You, I would love to go to Bounce You and do all of that bouncing. Um, it, it doesn't feel great partly because of the money. Um, it feels like it was more than we wanted to spend on a birthday party um, and, and then partly because like do we want to do the super easy thing? Yes, I do want to do the super easy thing. Is it thing. because
1: maybe because it's not – is it about easy or hard or did it not feel great because it's not unique?
3: There's that, but, like, I would very happily sacrifice the unique artisanal birthday party in exchange for the ease of scheduling if I didn't – if also if I didn't feel as though I and all of the other parents that I know are just sick of spending our Saturday mornings in this horrible place. It yeah. just was, it wasn't a thing that I felt great about, like, spending a large amount of money on.
1: So you tried to steer her away from this or you said no? We did tried
3: to steer we tried to propose other options there were various other options and the trouble is i mean we're in new york which is obviously more expensive than many places but nothing is like feels reasonable for an amount to spend on a kid's birthday party unfortunately um so that was a big issue um we wound up getting a really good tip from somebody and and doing something that i thought worked out really well which i will tell you about in a minute but first i want to know about your own birthday party strategy
1: I don't have a birthday party strategy. We've been through all the same things you have been through. Um, my So having a birthday party at home, I feel in my years of experience always costs more than doing the the bouncy thing, even if it seems astronomical because when you have it at home, as I've talked about before on the show, you reach a point like the day before the show where you like have a total freak out that it's just like, this is just a house. This is just my house. How disappointing for my child. My child is in my house every day. So then you do some, like, Amazon Prime rush order of, like, decorations and crazy gift bags and all this stuff that actually doesn't make the party any more fun for your kid but makes it quite expensive. I don't bake. So then you go get some, like, you know, lovely birthday cake that will also be good for the gr- – tastes delicious for the grown ups, and has, like, the whatever decoration your kid wants. And so that ends up, I think, always costing more. Um, and the other, like – I think the other thing that's hard is – is your kid not only ch- like your kid changes like your kid decides in advance what kind of party they want and then like a week before they're into something else. Um And so if, if you have a party booked somewhere like that's kind of like a this is what we're doing it. It's done. Sorry, but this is and if you're having it at your house, there's the opportunity to then. Change, which can also cost a lot of money. I don't
3: like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles anymore.
1: Well, that's why last year I ended up, Sam had like a pirate Star Wars party, and like I spent double the money because at the end, like I didn't want him to be poor Sam. I didn't want to be stuck with a wonderful pirate party if he's now into Star Wars. So I actually am pretty pro outsourcing but the other thing I'm pro and as the kids get older and I feel like your daughter is is definitely old enough for this and maybe this is what you're going to tell me that you did which is like you don't need to invite all the class or all the kids and um, having just like a couple of buddies over for like pizza and a movie is actually like easy and I think they have fun and it's much less stressful for the parent and I think it's actually less stressful for the kid. I have a friend who did Like every year their child is allowed to have the age that she's turning. I don't know if that's like necessary, but yeah, with a small group of girls or boys, like having five kids over, you can really like you can do some fun and interesting things and you don't have to like and the parents don't have to come and it can just be it can just be easy. So what's your tip? Uh,
3: that was basically what we did. We found, thanks to some other parents, the parents of a new friend of, of Eliza's from kindergarten, we, um, we found a way to frame that that, like, really worked for her and I think really works for, for the six-year-old girl age, um, which is what, what they called a late-over party. Um, these are the kids who are not yet old enough to have a sleepover. But they read about sleepovers and she's been talking about sleepovers for like two years. When can I have a sleepover? And like, I don't know, when you're eight you can have a sleepover oh, or What? What no? When that's would so you do old. a sleepover?
1: Five or six. Yeah.
3: Huh? Yeah, we haven't done we haven't done any sleepovers yet. <laughs> okay. Um, and we certainly wouldn't do like a slumber party.
1: No, that seems – yeah, right. That many kids, you need to be a bit older.
3: But so for a late-over party, then you can have all the six-year-old girls show up. We had six of them plus Eliza. Um, and they show up at five in their pajamas um, and they eat pizza and they watch a video, as you suggested, and, and they um, – by, by setting it up as, like, you're going to stay up late and, like, have a pillow fight and, like, this is a slumber party and then at, like, 8.30 or 9, your parents come and pick you up and take you home, it feels as though they're doing something that's a bit more grown up yeah, than, totally. the thing that they would, than a normal six-year-old birthday party. And that gives it a sort of special magic that I think substitutes a little bit for, like, your entire kindergarten class is here. Um the other thing was, we asked her what theme she wanted, and and she chose rainbow unicorns. So we had rainbow unicorn decorations everywhere, and there is some cute rainbow unicorn stuff out there, frankly. Um, and it was evening, and the lights were dim, and it like it has a
1: certain rainbow unicorn slumber party magic to it. <laughs> it had the vibe you were going for. It really, it uh, really that's did. great. I'd say our more like our most successful. Uh, I mean, I wonder if it has something to do with pajamas, because our most successful birthday party was a pajamas and pancake party. That was like, I don't even remember what time of day we did it, but the kids came over in their pajamas regardless, and like we had breakfast foods. And I think the kids were young enough that parents had to come, so we had Bloody Marys for the kid for the grown-ups, and that was a really fun party. I think pajamas are good.
3: I think pajamas is a great hack. I remember yeah. being like when I was seven years old, my grandparents would take me out in the evening. Like I would put on my pajamas and be getting ready for bed, and then they would be my when my when we were staying with my grandparents, they would say, Guess what? We're going out for ice cream and we would get in the car in our pajamas and go to Baskin Robbins and get ice cream. Oh, and like, are you allowed to go to Baskin Robbins <laughs> in your pajamas? Yeah. Whoa. It's a great, easy way to blow your kid's mind.
1: Okay. So let's go over a couple of birthday party issues that I think co- come up for everyone. See where you stand on them, where I stand on them, and then we'll we'll have solved the birthday party.
3: All right. Um, birthday presents from everybody.
1: Yes. Pro.
3: Yes, definitely. Who doesn't want to get birthday presents from everybody? Once the kids are
1: three or maybe four. Maybe once the kids are four, I'm going to draw that line. Yeah, that makes you sense. You could do like a no gifts when the kids are three.
3: That makes sense because little kids, it's just a bunch of junk to them anyway. Right. Uh, but right, once they're old enough to like really be excited about the acquisition of consumer goods, why, yes. why would you not want to?
1: Some people 11? don't. No. Okay.
3: Um, uh, birthday cake.
1: Pro, buy it.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't make a birthday. I mean, unless you're like a cake baking, unless you but love to bake cake. Don't all your cakes. do
1: that? That's that is the most pressure to me. No, is I've the never. Cake baking I, I I
3: don't remember the last birthday party at which the person had oh, baked. Man. The parent had baked the cake. No, I have found a really good. There's a great Brooklyn bakery that does a great birthday cake. That, as you said, all the parents are like, "Ooh, this is a very good birthday cake." Once so
1: you get a little older, then you can just do the grocery store cake because the parents aren't there, and that's much cheaper.
3: Yeah, right? yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, goodie bags.
1: Ah, uh, hate them hate myself for caving to them so i'm i'm anti but i always do them. why do you hate them because it's just a bunch of crap it's like stressful like either it's a like a, a nearly empty bag with crap or like you actually go and like buy great stuff and spend all this money which like is just dumb and ridiculous um and the kids are kind of like entitled about them like the kids really like expect those fucking gift bags.
3: They definitely expect them I with Eliza at least like the gift bag is definitely like as important as any other aspect of somebody's birthday party like yeah she's got to bounce you a dozen times she's gotten the same bounce (laughs) you ham inflatable hammer thing a dozen times if she didn't get that hammer she would be really mad there's something I think innate she has so much stuff she has plenty of stuff these are like kids growing up in New York at the beginning of the 21st century she has plenty of physical Objects, but there is some allure of ownership of physical object that is just innate to the six-year-old brain. I think. Yeah. Um, paid entertainment, like a, a magician or clown or, or or sing-along guy.
1: Um, I don't feel strongly, but I've only done that once, and I will say it wasn't like my favorite. It's kind of I don't know that it just if you have the right person. But like basically all I think when I have a, an entertainer in my house is that person doesn't want to be here. Like, how, Like what a miserable time for that person. <laughs> and then it makes me sad.
3: Huh.
0: Yeah,
3: I, I, We've never actually hired the entertainer. We, we were at a party a couple of weeks ago with a birthday clown, and he was like, a really? Like, a. this was clearly a terrific expert children's entertainer birthday yeah. clown. And I got the feeling that this was what he liked to do. And he was able to make a living being an entertainer for small children. And then I recognized him as, as the birthday clown who was in the the documentary Capturing the Freedmans. Um,
1: Wait, he was one of the brothers? He
3: was the older brother. Who, wow. The, that documentary was made, uh, began when the documentarian decided to make a birth uh, documentary about New York's top birthday clown. Right. And wound up uncovering um, a lot of disturbing family right. stuff. Wow, that's intense. Uh, but it turns out that the guy <laughs> is a terrific birthday clown.
1: I don't feel strongly about it, but it's not my it's not my favorite.
3: Well, inviting the whole class or inviting just a few kids?
1: Just some. Yeah.
3: It's, yeah. it's tough, but you got to – I mean, otherwise, it's too many kids to, to have a good time together, and all you have – all you get is a sort of mass of, of childhood.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think – so my sister, uh, where she lives in Tel Aviv, and I feel like at all the schools her kids have gone to, which have been several, they have this – like, you have to invite the whole class. Like, they're just rules. And I think there are other schools that have that as well. Um but we don't have that rule. I mean, I wouldn't want it to. I guess it's important as you get older, as the kids get older, to be like aware of kids feeling left out. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't be cool to like invite only the boys, except for one boy, <laughs> like that. You know, I would want to be aware of that. But inviting all twenty-four kids is just crazy. But you have to either, it's either it has to either be like a real minority mm. or the whole thing.
3: Yeah, it has to be an organic group or yeah. or everybody. Yeah, um, same sex or mixed gender.
1: I'd be totally pro mixed gender, but my kids are not. They won't invite girls? At the uh at this point, no. I mean Wally, the three year old would would, yeah. His friend his friend Ellery who lets him he says she lets me touch my train to her train.
3: goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta invite Ellery. Uh you? Uh, we we only had girls at this one if it was a bigger thing like she, you know she has some friends who are boys but it's I think they are at this age uh, recreating in separate groups so it yeah. would just, like naturally tend to be single sex
1: so this is my moment when I like do Dan's Ace of Hates thing but I'm gonna do it um, this is my idea for like great Kid birthday party venue and listeners, you should tell me if you think this is a great idea and then send me money and I should start this. Kiddy. Have I talked to you about this, Gabe? I have heard oh, this you've heard about Yeah, Kidioki no, it's great. I love kiddioke. Um, I really think that like kids of a certain age, all the way up through like, I don't know, it wouldn't work kiddy, the name wouldn't work for a teenager, but if it had a different name um that wasn't so uh but yeah, Kid Karaoke, where you go, they have like lyrics to so- like all the pop songs that kids love. They have some versions that are clean. Uh, the gift bag is actually a recording of your favorite song with your friends. I think it's I think it could be huge. Does this exist? Tell me, listeners.
3: If it doesn't exist, you should uh, start it and you would instantly – your revenues would instantly surpass those of Ace of Hates so dramatically (laughs) and Kois would be so mad. Probably so with the amount of money I'd have to put in. And I I would
1: love to see that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Listeners, tell us about your birthday party challenges and hacks and tips uh, on our Facebook page. Let's move on to recommendations. Gabe. I have a recommendation. It's
3: from (laughs) – (laughs) Now's the time. (laughs) (laughs) now is as you say the time Uh, my recommendation uh, as with my fail from the world of children's literature we this is a series of books that I read when I was a kid that I sort of forgot about that I somehow within was reminded of Uh, and for a car trip I I got the audio book and tried playing it for Eliza and she loved it and I wound up loving it too it's so great Um, the series is called The Great Brain it's by an author named John D. Fitzgerald Um, and, and the audiobook is read by Ron McLarty. It's terrific. Or the book itself is just great. It was written in 1967 and it's set in a small town in Utah um, at the very end of the 19th century. Uh, And it's about children in this small Mormon town and the tricks and scams and games and escapades that they get up to. And it includes things like a daring rescue from two kids who have wandered into a cave and gotten lost. It includes the installation of the town's first flushable toilet. Um, You learn a lot about like, oh, yeah, I guess they didn't have flushable toilets and everybody had to go into the outhouse for a while. And then they installed plumbing and And yet it's presented in a a sort of lively and mischievous way that I remember responding to and then I see Eliza responding to. It's probably like the target age would probably be 9 or 10, but she likes things – that she doesn't quite entirely understand she likes aspirational literature And um, these are
1: like ch- these are chapter books
3: these are chapter books yeah um, and the the audiobooks are great and and just reading the books are great the, uh, the the first one is called the great brain and the author is John D Fitzgerald
1: we've been reading i recommended last week the all um, all of a, kind family series which is about a jewish immigrant family in the lower east side in the at the turn of the century and it's in i mean i don't know if it's similar because i haven't read this but like i think that they really get my kids have really gotten a kick out of like the part that you're talking about, like, they did, oh, they didn't have that then, and it was different then, and yet it still feels very, like, sort of relevant and modern in a way. Yeah, yeah.
3: and because it's about little kids, yeah. then they immediately understand all of the dynamics, even yeah. if the, the setting is
1: very different. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Uh, my recommendation is a little weird, but um, I want to recommend this GQ profile of the designer and now movie director and father, Tom Ford. Did you read this? I
3: didn't. Many people sent it to me.
1: Um, So I, it was written by my friend, I should say, so I'm sort of, like, log rolling for my friend. Uh, But there are many memorable details in this profile, like, for instance, how Tom Ford takes three to five daily power baths a day. But the reason I'm recommending it is the section that's gotten the most attention, I think, is how Tom Ford controls his four-year-old son Jack's wardrobe. He lets him pick out what he wants to wear every day, but his only choices are these high-end clothes that Tom Ford has, um, has, has bought for him. And he did somehow allow his his son to have a pair of light-up dinosaur shoes, but he's only allowed – the kid is only allowed to wear them on the weekends, not, like, out in public or at school. So that's just a tiny part of the piece, but it has really hardened my resolve to not let my own vanity impact my children – the way my children dress. I don't know how you feel about this, but, like, my kids really are slobs. Like, they wear – awful football jerseys and ugly shoes and not cool t-shirts and sweatshirts. And sometimes I feel incredibly jealous of the parents whose children are like pretty put together with their like cool vans and their, you know, pretty blouse. And reading this made me think like, I don't want to be too judgmental of the people who like dress their kids up in cool, and expensive clothes, but uh, I, and I wouldn't necessarily discourage my kids from dressing better within reason if they wanted to, but I think I feel good about the fact that they don't care about clothes and reading the piece made me want to like never push them into Vans if they prefer ugly ass sketchers. Well,
3: and, and let the kid wear the light up dinosaur sneakers for crying out loud. Those joy. are great sneakers. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, that totally brings them joy. So I recommend reading the profile because it's just a good piece uh, and also not caring about your kids being stylish. Okay, that is our show. Remember to please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarfighting, and please contribute to our Goodbye Dan Coyce thread. Uh, email us at slate.com. Mom and Dad are Fighting as part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks to our producer, Zach Dinerstein, executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai and Panoply head honcho, Andy Bowers. Also, thanks to our guest, Debbie Hain-Vijavergia, and thanks to you, Gabe Roth, Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.